You're listening to Notes from Norwich. Right, so now we are recording what I think is going to be our first episode of some new podcast project that, God willing, will be fruitful to the three of us and maybe to other people. So um, who are we? Who are you two first? I can go first. I'm J.N. Koshi. Um, I uh, live in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I am in discernment for holy orders in the Diocese of Minnesota and also an oblate aspirant with the Order of Julian of Norwich. Okay, I'm Marguerite Kirchhoff, and I live in suburban Twin Cities, Minnesota. I am retired. I have two grown children. I have been affiliated with the Order of Julian of Norwich in Wisconsin, in White Lake, Wisconsin, for a little more than four years, and as an oblate for two years. And that's me. My name is Chris Arnold. I am uh, a priest in the Episcopal Church. I serve a parish in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, called Trinity Episcopal Church. Um, And I, like Jan, am also an aspirant, uh, an oblate aspirant to the Order of Julian of Norwich. Um, And uh, so we should probably say right off the bat that this is in no way an official... uh, an official statement uh, yeah, product. Mother Hillary, if you're listening, we're yeah. not trying to represent the order. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we are all uh, um, affiliated um, uh, as, aspirationally. So in, in my case, but you know, this is part of, of my discernment. We are supposed to um, explore and continue to explore uh, the revelations of a divine love by uh, Julian of Norwich, and I think this really grew out of the three of us talking on Twitter mm-hmm. um, about our own reflections and observations. And now we find ourselves in this time. Uh, we're recording this uh, on the last day, no, the next to last day of March in 2020, when this coronavirus thing is um, beginning to hit hard, and I think yeah. it will hit harder. And I think a lot of people seem to be trying to figure out, you know, what are the spiritual resources that we can draw on at a time uh, of worry and anxiety and doubt. And um, and a lot of people have been showing up on Twitter saying, well, you know, Julian of Norwich wrote a lot of stuff at a time when there were plagues all over mm-hmm. England. Um, so... We're not writing. We're not doing this. I think as a response to coronavirus, but um. I think as as I think about what I want to bring to this project, um, in response to coronavirus, there has been a lot of opining about Julian, um, and I would like to perhaps help ground that in a prayerful reading of the revelations of divine love. Um, I'm, I'm noticing in my own spirit during these times that I can be, I'm especially prone to being reactive. Um, And I, this is 
an invitation to myself and I hope to others to approach Julian in relation to this time from a perspective of prayerful engagement. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes a lot of sense. So we're going to be talking about the revelations of divine love. We're going to be talking about Julian's experience that led to her writing the revelations of divine love, which was a period of time of about a day and a half in which she was desperately ill thinking that she would die and being ready to die. And then suddenly all her pains went away and she began to have what I think we'd have to call in today's language, a one-on-one with God (laughs) for over a, over a day. And it took her then 20 years to, figure it all out to write it all down in a in a way that she could conceivably share it and after that she became an anchoress in the St. Julian's Church in Norwich and spent the last 20 years of her life in that way mm-hmm. so yeah so i think today we're going to talk about chapter one, which is essentially a table of contents, and then chapter two, where um, she kind of lays out her um, understanding of the context for the visions, what what her life leading up to it spiritually was about. So, those of you who are listening to this, who might be interested in following along, uh, there are lots of different versions of uh, Dame Julian's revelations out there, different uh, translations. Well, it's weird to say translations because she wrote in English, mm-hmm. right? She's the first woman to write uh, in English. And yet uh, Middle English is yet, uh, di- yeah. di- different enough that it... Uh, it is a translation. It, it merits yeah. translation. <laughs> so we are... Um, we're all using the translations and there's several different printings of them out there, but the, by father John Julian, who is actually the founder of the order of Julian of Norwich. Um, and so there's uh, I'm sure in the show notes, when I eventually published this, I'll put a link to um, a place where you might be able to buy your own copy. If you don't have uh, a copy of, of the revelations at home. I think we should say that Father John Julian, um, at least in the translator's note that in this edition, talks about his intention with this translation is especially geared towards devotional reading. And so the way he has approached the text has been, I think, in line with what I'm hoping we can do is this prayerful engagement. Yeah, I think this podcast is not going to be... uh like an academic paper. Um, I I wrote earlier today on Twitter, and I think, Marguerite, you said, like, write that down or something. But I said that for me, one of the values of of Julian and her writing is, is not that she was, you know, an excellent example of 
the ascetical life or or whatever, but that she had um, determined to explore the landscape of suffering, which mm-hmm. I think is then shared a shared part of human experience. And she became a tour guide of the landscape of suffering um, and really trying to make sense of what it means to say that God is good and is love and is mercy and is the creator of everything and called it good, which is true. And then also, you know, we live in this life that is filled with um, at least days, if not months or years of uh, of suffering and um, some real junk. <laughs> mm-hmm. So how do we balance those two out? Mm-hmm. And thanks be to God that God showed Julian away and sh- she shared it with us. Mm-hmm. I love that image of tour guide. It makes me think of Dante's divine comedy um, and Virgil, <laughs> Virgil walking Dante through, uh, hell purgatory and heaven um and i i love this idea of julian kind of walking with us through her revelations um Hmm. and uh kind of pointing pointing out the objects of note along the way that uh she invites us to reflect on so what happens in chapter one I left my book upstairs <laughs> when I came running downstairs. So one of you will have to read it to us or something. Uh, so chapter one is, uh, I was talking before we started recording with Marguerite, um, a, uh, a table of contents that would probably be marked very poorly by a teacher if we submitted it today. <laughs> um, she lays out the 16 showings um, that, unfolded over that day and a half that Marguerite was talking about. Um, And it's really um, laying out the plotting the course that she plans to follow through the rest of the text. The way she names the 16 showings is as Jan pointed out, it is not uniform. It doesn't, it doesn't follow historical um a t- an historical timeline uh, it's the the passion of christ is broken up into parts that you wouldn't normally think of it as being and, and interspersed with with other ideas and so it's hard to it's it's hard to make sense of these of these 16 showings as she has listed them and most People who write about the revelations of divine love skip that chapter in their in their commentary because just to say this is what she, this is what she talked about, and now we'll go on to chapter two because this, because otherwise you'll just you'll just give up. <laughs> um, the first showing is the crown of thorns, which makes complete sense. That's fine, and then it's the. Dis- coloring of Jesus' face on the cross. And then it's God is all power, all wisdom and love. And how did that slip in if we're talking about the passion? And then it's mm-hmm. the scourging, which happens before 
Jesus is on the cross. So mm-hmm. this, this is what I'm saying. Um, it's not at all chronological. It's not chronological. It's chronological in the way that she, in the way that these revelations were given to her, mm-hmm. in the way that the showings were given to her. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't, it doesn't follow the way that we know the story of the passion to be. Um, it's like, it's like she had a, a, a folder with 16 photographs in it and then dropped it on the floor and then picked them up <laughs> one at a time and they're out of order, mm-hmm. but somehow they all, they all belong in the same folder. And this exactly. is, I think it, um, it speaks to the raw, raw character of this book. Um, that this is, you, you enter into it in this first chapter and you're like, oh, this is not a theological treatise um, in the sense of a, an argument laid out. This is um, someone divulging an intimate experience she had with God and divulging it and expounding on it. Um, but if she if she wanted it to be a theological treatise, I feel like she would have kind of rearranged the showings in a way that yeah. chronologically made sense. They built an argument, right? You know, and I think the fact that they're out of order, so to speak, um, speaks to her intention, um, as I see it, of sharing, not so much arguing. The experience that she had was so vivid and so compelling that even after 20 years, when she's, when she writes it down, it feels like it happened yesterday. Mm-hmm. It's just that, that strong in, in her experience and in her piety. And there's nothing, there's just, there's literally nothing like it in the world. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So have you two had um, moments or episodes in your life that you still reflect on, you know, years later, decades later? Absolutely. Um, It's probably way too personal to ask you to share what those are. I am very hesitant to share, um, partly because um, I have a deep suspicion of self-proclaimed mystics. (laughs) <laughs> and I, and I think part of the reason I, uh, I trust Julian so much is that she's unassuming in the way she shares this. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I have had spiritual experiences that I continue to reflect on and continue to unfold in that reflection. Um, in a way that, uh, you know, she says at the end of the book that, this book started and is still not finished. Um, mm. That these these are experiences that happened happened um, temporally in a day and a half, but happened conceptually over decades, and that mm-hmm. like she they they unfolded throughout her reflection. Um, and I I've I, that definitely resonates with some experiences I've had, um, particularly. Uh, I think about um, my experience, this is, this is a little vulnerable, um, when, I got, when I got sober um, and I detoxed on my own, which was foolish, um, the uh, storm of neurotransmitters that was going on 
um, was accompanied by some experiences that have stuck with me and have been fodder for reflection. Um, and it, it strikes me that um, from, a, from an academic scientific perspective, it would be easy to write off um, Julian's experiences as delirium. Um, and yet perhaps uh, delirium and genuine re revelation can exist together. Um, that it it needn't it needn't be um, either either her near death experience or God speaking to her that the the two the two might be there at the same time. Um, so that that uh, has been helpful as I think about my detox experience um, and the ways I encounter God in those days. Um, that yeah. Um, my brain chemistry was a mess. Um, and that doesn't mean that God wasn't encountering me, you know? Exactly. There are ways of knowing things and ways of, of learning things from God that are almost impossible to even vocalize, to even put into any kind of words or images or anything that it's just, it, you know it and it changes you, but if you were to map it out as a narrative or as an essay, mm -hmm. it would sound either extremely foolish mm -hmm. or, I mean, any kind of thing that you can think of, childish, made up, science fiction, I mean, just mm -hmm. any kind of nonsense at all, but yet, yet you can be changed internally by it. Mm-hmm. And I think that oh, I think that that is what happened with Julian. Definitely, I mean, she even talks about how she saw something in the in the mind of her heart. You know, she'll say things like that. And what does that mean? But she says it enough so that you do kind of figure out that she's talking about a perception at, at this level, and then there's another perception at this level, and then there's another perception at this level, mm -hmm. and. So that's that's what she's trying to communicate. Mm -hmm. What else do we learn from this first chapter? Mm. I mean, I think the fact that she provides a table of contents. Speaks to me of her like uh, to me, this is written down to help her to begin to make sense of it as well. So it's the raw experience mm -hmm. of receiving these visions. And then yes, decades of reflecting on the visions mm -hmm. without ever trying to, mm, to control the beauty out of them, you mm -hmm. know, but mm -hmm. just to try to make sense of, uh, uh, of what it is that she's received. Um, yeah that um and that resonates i think with the <laughs> the way the table of contents kind of at, at points veers into commentary um <laughs> on on the reflection um that this is her trying to organize um trying to make sense of this uh powerful experience 
that she's um she's recounting this and at the same time trying to metabolize it I don't know that I have anything else to say on <laughs> chapter one. <laughs> sure. Chapter one. Where, where do we go next? Chapter two chapter seems two. to be <laughs> the, the lo- next, next logical step. place. Yeah. Um, I hope that our listeners don't assume that, uh, well, I hope we have listeners. First of all, hello <laughs> listeners. Uh, Hi guys. But I, <laughs> I um I hope that nobody is under the illusion that we have any idea what we're doing. Uh, we're exploring this as we go. I am so, no Julian expert. <laughs> um, I am just somebody who has benefited greatly from her wisdom. So, yeah, so chapter two. These revelations were shown to a simple, simple creature, creature unlettered. Yeah. Um. A simple creature. I mean, I, I was I was saying uh, um, about my suspicion of self-proclaimed mystics, and this a simple creature phrase um, really captures why I trust Julian. Um, I I know people have framed it as like, oh, this is a rhetorical device to kind of give her authority, even as a woman, and. Maybe there's merit to that, but as I as I read it, what this this speaks to me, um, it's it frames it in terms of a creature encountering her creator. Um, in a, it infuses it from the get go with a deep humility that um, I think continues to pervade the revelations from that point on. What about these three things that she desires from God? Yeah. The mind of his passion or an understanding of the passion, that seems to make sense. We, uh, I think every time we approach Holy Week, and, and right before we started recording, I was, uh, I'm, I'm trying to write up notes for my parish about how we can all be celebrating Holy Week at home, which is, I never thought that I would be in a place... Yeah where I have to do this, but um, here we are. Uh, we'll celebrate Holy Week uh, in our homes and um, know that God is with us, I hope. But mm-hmm. so the first one, trying to make sense out of the passion, that seems to make sense. But desiring bodily sickness <laughs> and three wounds from God, these seem like not very um, popular things. I don't know anyone else <laughs> in my circle of friends today who asks for things like that from God. We, we want to be protected, don't we, from wounds and kept safe from sickness, mm-hmm. not invite them into our lives. What's going on? Yeah. And I think, um, <clears throat> I think about recent conversations I've had and witnessed um, that are baffled by this uh, desire for life-threatening illness. Um, it's not like she was a stranger to suffering and this kind of illness. Um, I mean, this happened, I think between two major waves of the bubonic plague. Um, 
she knows what she's asking for. Uh, this is not a naive desire. Um, and she says, and this I intended so that I would be purged by the mercy of God and afterward live more to the honor of God because of that sickness. For I hoped that it could be to benefit, for I hoped that it could be to my benefit when I would have died, for I desired to be soon with my God and maker. So this is this purgative desire um, that lies behind the the ask of um, bodily sickness that um, you know I <laughs> I think about um, the the lengths to which I am willing to give up um myself and my um, comfort in the pursuit of holiness and being purged of sin. And um, it's not to that length. That's, uh, I, I don't know what to do with a, an eagerness of this intensity to be purged. You know? I think that her, go ahead. So, no. I think that her eagerness was so extreme. I mean, it's the thing about her that amazes me that she would want to start over again, mm. a new life without the sins from before that, that the illness would have just given her a fresh start. I mean, that's, you know, that's repentance. That's what we talk about when, when we, but this is an extreme version of it. Mm. And for her to want to have, almost died and then be taken away from death be ready to die be ready to meet her her savior and then to be taken away from that spot so that she can then love god even more mm. that was her point her point was mm. that she wanted to in this new life after age 30 to to love god even more than before her mm. desire to love God. I mean, that's kind of, that's what boggles my mind about Julian is that she wants to love God more than she loves God. And that is, I don't know. How can you, how can you wish to love God more than you? I mean, you can, I guess, but I don't know anybody that is so dissatisfied with their um, spirituality that they would say, okay, I think if I just come close to death, then I can put all this away and then I will love God even more. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're all so self-satisfied with ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. I go to church on Sunday. I, I don't, you know, cheat on my husband. I don't, uh, I, I don't rob convenience stores. I'm <laughs> hooray for me. You know, Julian is just way beyond that. And um, it just, she just clearly states that she wants to begin her life over again with a greater love for God. So I've run into a few people who say, well, this is, this is very troubling. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it just reflects this kind of medieval obsession with punishing the body, with mm -hmm. embracing suffering, uh, with, you know, 
pleasing God by making ourselves miserable. And surely, mm-hmm. um, in our modern faith, we should realize that pleasure and um, comfort and consolation uh, are also gifts of God that should be embraced. Mm-hmm. Um, which I'm not going to engage with directly, but it leads me to a, to a question: are, are this discomfort that we, that I have, I'll use my I words, that I have <laughs> with trying to wrap my mind around Julian's desire for these wounds and her, this sickness, mm-hmm. is this a difference of perspective between the 14th century and the 21st? And a whole different set of cultural values between 14th century England, 21st century Upper Midwest, North America. (laughs) Or is this Julian? Would the people in Julian's neighborhood have read the second chapter and said, yeah, that makes sense. That's, I mean, that's what you do if you want to be a holy person. Um, Or, or would they have read that as well and said, wow, she's, she's, I mean, we're happy to go to church and say our prayers, but she's, she's crazy. Certainly some of it can be, can be connected to the medieval mindset, especially for women mm-hmm. um, that women were particularly encouraged to contemplate the passion of Christ, to contemplate Christ's suffering and to have that for themselves as a, as a discipline and as a means of increasing sanctity. Mm-hmm. However, I think that Julian is, Julian is true to that. Uh, first of all, I think that that's for everybody. I mean, it does say, take up your cross and follow me, doesn't it? So I think Julian is true to this. She is beyond what, and this is my opinion, she is beyond what the culture might have imposed on her. So I think it's a true thing for her to say that she wanted to, she wanted to experience this illness, come close to death, and then come back and start again. Yeah, I think maybe, um, and and I don't, I'm not a scholar of medieval spirituality, um, but I wonder if maybe the language in which she describes this would be more intelligible in the 14th century than it is for us. Um, But the, the intensity and earnestness with which she, she desires it, I think is truly God's grace in Julian. And I think not, not a product of time. I mean, the Christian world is filled with, with these characters, right. And in, in every time and place uh, whose life stories we read and we say, wow, that is, that's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. The sort of, things that they desire uh, the lengths that they're able to go to. Um, I remember back when I was first becoming a Christian, I read um, kind of like a little summary of the life of St. Dominic. Mm. And 
it, you know, it's all this stuff in there about how he would stay up all night long praying. And I would say, well, yeah, I mean, what that means is that he stayed up until like half an hour after the other brothers went to bed. (laughs) Um, I know an exaggeration when I read it. And (laughs) then I had somebody say to me, but you know, all that you're doing is trying to think of your life and what would feel like a slight inconvenience. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then assuming that the saints of the church are capable of a little bit more slight inconvenience than you, as opposed to being completely compelled and overwhelmed and, and absorbed with um, saturated in this Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. completely different way of being motivated. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, you're right. <laughs> um, and I, and I realized that that I wanted Saint Dominic to be more like me, because um, then it would make me feel better about myself. Yeah. But then over time, I realized that I I need the saints to be heroic to help urge me on and to help me to realize that you know the life that I live now is. Um, sufficient i i believe that i'm not short of god's grace in my life but that there's a limitless potential in what i could do um if i was given the grace to pursue it um but i guess this is one of those themes that Mm -hmm. julian pursues all the way through her book so we'll we'll Mm -hmm. we'll come back to it i'm sure Mm -hmm. how we live this life Mm-hmm. I do want to say on the the sense of the passion that she asked for the first thing um, there again she I think has that milieu instilled in her this like the devotion to the passion um, that I think is instilled in 14th century especially women um, but she goes beyond that she goes a step beyond that she wants a bodily sight she wants not just a sense of the passion, but a memory of the passion um, that I think has to be peculiar, has to be a peculiar grace um, that wanting this bodily sight, this, she wants to know the passion as though she were there. That is, um, you know, the genre makes sense, but the intensity, I think, speaks to the saintliness. It's funny the way that her experience of and and we'll get into this later in the in the book, her experience of the of, of the passion, it's not as if she were there. In the at the historical moment of it, it's almost as if she were there in an abstraction of it, so that she can see the blood and she can feel the pity of it. But it it's not a panic kind of pity that you would feel if you were actually there. Mm. And and so it's as if she were visiting a scene that is held in time, but not actually happening. Mm there even though things do happen it's not like she's there at the actual at at the actual passion Mm -hmm. and then 
and that seeing you know seeing the other people there and seeing the crown and seeing the seeing his skin dried out and mm-hmm. well anyway it's <laughs> very interesting to me the way that and 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 actually it makes me trust Julian even more that she portrays it that way instead of I mean if I were going to make something up I would make it up as if I you know as if I'm a movie director and I'm you know, and I'm, I'm right there and you can feel it all and you can worry about it. I mean, she wasn't worried about it. She was feeling, she wasn't worried. Anyway, it's, it's just as to her credibility, in my opinion, mm. the, the way she frames it. It's an experience that's timeless, that I, that's, it happens, but is outside time. Exactly. So in that sense that, uh, um, one of the ways that I, and not only I, but that I uh, imagine the Eucharist is we have these Sunday celebrations, you know, at 10 o'clock in the morning in our parish churches. But, but there's another Eucharist that is eternally mm-hmm. being celebrated around the throne, mm-hmm. and we just tap into it. A friend of mine said that there's this sort of, like, common contemporary Eastern Orthodox metaphor where, you know, when we go into the temple, into the the church building on Sunday morning, it's like the elevator doors close and we get rocketed up and the doors open, uh, the royal doors open. And and there, you know, we are able to look through and see the choirs of angels and the martyrs and the saints. And that that Eucharist is not something that happens at the end of time. It happens eternally throughout um, in every uh, in every time and place, and we just tie into that for a, an hour, and then you know drop back into our normal lives, um, or maybe that's our normal life, and this one is just uh, just the exception. Maybe we're dreaming this world. Um, but so, in that same sense, there's this you know connection between um, the temporal, the physical, material world where I am, you know, at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, whether it's in front of the camera because I'm zoom streaming something these days or in my church building. Um, and likewise, Julian seems to be connecting this, um, this like the, the eternity of Christ's passion mm-hmm. that, uh, as long as there is a creation, the incarnate one is suffering for it. Mm-hmm. Even before yeah. Jesus is born as a baby, mm. yes. and even yes, even since Christ ascended into glory, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. in every time and place, somewhere mystically, mm-hmm. Christ is suffering uh, on behalf of creation. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, in a sense, she can kind of have that abstracted almost artistic representation, like a, um, if I were better at this, I would have my art terms instead of like realism, uh, um, impressionism. Mm -hmm. So instead of having a depiction, a faithful visual depiction of the scene, you have an attempt to capture the essence. Yeah. The transcendent qualities, Mm -hmm. the, the, the emotional response, Mm -hmm. um, the, Numinousness, mm-hmm. um, 
the truth of it. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, that idea of the, at, at every point eternally, the incarnate word is suffering for the world. Um, you know, it, part of what strikes me about Julian's understanding of humanity is that we're always held in that loving gaze of the crucified Christ. Um, and the, that, um, that timelessness, that eternal passion um, that we participate in um, is central to who we are as humans. Say more about that. So, so I, I mean, I think I've been, I've been reading a lot of Rowan Williams, um, which I mean, what, what Anglican doesn't, um, <laughs> but he, um, his whole ethical framework is this idea that, um, every human being is first and foremost in a creator created relationship um that it is that relationship of each human with god that we should start with when we're thinking about how to be in the world um and that i think shows up in julian in this concept of, of us being always held in this loving gaze of christ on the cross um that we derive our identity as Christians um, from being from being held in this gaze um, and that the the eternal character of the crucifixion I think is key for that that we we are always... I think in Jul Julian is in a way trying to tell us that we are always participating in this eternal passion, you know, that she, she has a bodily sight of it. Um, that we are, she tells us that we are nonetheless always participating in that we are, she is telling us that this thing that I, that I was gifted a bodily sight of is the reality that undergirds our existence that we we exist in the context of this eternal passion is it jesus's death that she's trying to understand or someone else's in her life is she trying to use the passion of jesus to make sense of a death that she's known i'm not a psychologist but that's always the question that i have trying to Oh, one of many questions that I have. She um, wanted, I read her as wanting fundamentally insight into Christ's passion. Um, I think that is what she's seeking in my read and that her understanding of our suffering flows out of that, but that her desire is to understand and participate in Christ's passion. I agree a hundred percent, Jay. And I think that she's 
She never tells us anything about anybody in her life. She says that people are there when she's sick and her mother's there. In fact, there is that moment, and we're getting into later chapters, where she <laughs> yeah. decides she wants to know if someone that she cares about is going to continue to be holy. And she is told in no uncertain terms that that is just not part of what we're talking about here, lady. And, you know, we're just <laughs> I'm not a fortune teller. <laughs> but- <laughs> well, Yes, he is a fortune teller, but well. <laughs> not going to tell tell fortunes. Is that I, I just think that I I agree that she is really mainly concerned or exclusively concerned with tapping into Christ's passion and what it means for her, and her continual harping on eternity throughout <laughs> RDL is embodies that and, and and explains that and and underlies that that everything to her is eternal everything is without beginning everything is will always be and that is she is just that is a that is a big big theme for her and i don't i for, for me i don't think i even understood eternity until i read the revelations of divine love i mean i didn't understand it in a in as big a sense as it is so when she talks about Christ's passion as continuing, it's just it's just part of her eternal her eternal idea. Her eternal idea of eternity. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I like that. Uh what about these three wounds that she wants to receive? She asks for boldly. Yeah. Um, or as mightily, I, yeah. The translation that I'm looking at now, like I said, I left the book upstairs, so I just found it on uh, online somewhere, and it's so it's an old translation, and I don't know who did it, but it says the wound of very contrition, the wound of kind compassion, mm-hmm. and the wound of steadfast longing toward God. Mm-hmm. Father John Julian translates it wound of true contrition the wound of natural compassion and the wound of earnest yearning for God. And then she says, and just as I asked the other two with a condition, this bodily sight and the sickness. So all this last petition, I asked mightily without any condition. Um, which just the, you know, the, the line from the new Testament approaching the throne boldly. Um, just jumps out to me here that she is uh she is asking for this in such confidence um such boldness at least that um i I think she understands this as these these wounds are things that god wants to give i think she's she's her personality as it comes out in the rdl doesn't it doesn't seem to me that she would be asking this mightily if she did not believe that it would be granted, you know, um, that, so that what that says to me is that is she asks for true contrition for this natural compassion and for this earnest yearning. She understands these wounds as things that God wants to, or has always already provided. 
It seems to me that the th- I wrote uh, a little reflection trying to make sense out of these wounds, that these wounds, these three requests are um, the, the correct in her mind, in my mind as well. Um, I just don't pray for them as earnestly as she does. But the correct relationship that she has with herself, contrition, uh, with God and earnest yearning for God and with her neighbors and everyone else that she shares the creation with. Mm. Um, so compassion towards, towards everyone else. So in a sense, it's a, a, a way of reframing that great commandment, mm. you know, loving God, loving your neighbors as you, as love, you love yourself. yourself. And there's, um, so I can turn it around and, and make it a sort of a reframing, a gift of the correct attitudes that lead mm. to those three kinds of love, um, which then, of course, I shared this with someone and they pushed back on two things in particular. Mm. One of them is how is contrition a manifestation of love for yourself? And the other one is how are these three things? wounds and I, I put those to you <laughs> well I, I don't think that I'm going to say that they're intended as wounds in the way that you would think of a, you know a, a knife wound or a, something that is Damage. Painful and and bad, I guess. But these are things that touch her deeply, that make an impression, that make a mark, that pierce her. That's what she wants. She wants to be pierced with these three things, with with contrition, with um, compassion, and with a, a desperate yearning for God. And she, it's not something, she, she doesn't want them out there in, as an abstract mental thing for herself. Um, She wants them to actually happen to her, to be made into her, forced into her. Like I can feel intellectually that I would like to be sorry for my sins. And I definitely do feel that way all the time. But for me to actually want contrition, for, for me to want that to penetrate me, that is a big step. Mm-hmm. That is a very big step, much more than mm-hmm. much more than a person could easily take. Mm-hmm. It takes it takes a lot to want that. And the same with compassion and the same with longing for God. Because once you start, if you start read John of the Cross from once you start <laughs> longing for God, you're done for. You are just you are done for. <laughs> Do not go down that path. <laughs> Unadvisedly. <laughs> There's just it's, you don't it's not it's not it's not a it's not a light thing. Hmm. I like that. Um, I like that framing of the the piercing as and this hmm. I think also is her. She is distinctive in the degree in the in the fervor in which she desires these things. Um, that yeah, I can I can ask for true contrition, 
but to ask for it to to pierce my very being is is extreme in a in a really good way in a really beautiful way but it is extreme so is uh is it too high a standard to have julian as a role model or can we learn what we can learn and not have to be anchorites i think yes, I um, where she was an anchorite so yes mm-hmm. we can you know so go ahead jane i think um to have her as a role model does not necessarily mean that we have to hold ourselves to her standard um in the sense that i don't i don't think she would want us to feel like we are falling short by not reaching where she's at or um by not attaining the kind of level of willingness to pour herself out like this i don't i don't think she would want us to look on ourselves with blame mm. um but perhaps a role model in an aspirational sense in the sense that we the art in the rdl we see laid out the fruit of this profound willingness um and to have her as a role model in the sense of wanting that willingness i think is vital we just shouldn't i think beat ourselves up if we don't get there that this is a this is a uh this is a carrot for my dumb mule soul to reach for um not a ruler that I need to measure myself by, you know? Good. So in the, uh, the way of perfection by Teresa of Avila, another of my favorites, when we're done with this podcast, we can get to work on <laughs> Teresa. Um, uh, she makes it clear again and again that the, that, that contemplative prayer is a gift from God and that some of the sisters in her community they're not given that gift. Mm-hmm. It's not you God God gifts people with the unique and special gifts that they're to receive. And um that was helpful for me during a time when I was kind of trying to figure out uh religious commitment. It was somewhere in seminary. And I was going back and forth between feeling drawn to this kind of life of commitment and how was I going to live out my life in a way that was deep and meaningful without turning it into just a long list of things to feel guilty about. Mm-hmm. It's the first time that I tried putting together a rule of life. How do I put something together that um, that holds me accountable without letting that just become a checklist of things that I have failed at. And it's a really difficult balance to strike. And of course, my 
Reformed friends in the Episcopal Church were saying, that's all works righteousness, man. Just accept that Jesus died for you and don't worry about the rest of it. And I said, well, <laughs> 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 but I'm, I'm driven, I'm driven, I'm driven to try to be more than I am. And I, I can't not do that. I can't not seek some way to be closer to Christ than I am. I can't just say, well, you know, Mm -hmm. Jesus died for me. I can get on with my day. Um, I wish that I could because I would go out to brunch more. Um, (laughs) But it was very, then very helpful to have this word from Teresa of Avila um, that reminded me that, that these things are gifts, these motivations, these desires are gifts that not everyone is given. Mm-hmm. Uh, not everyone is given an equal measure. Um, I think we're all called to be saints, but not all of us are called to be great mystic saints and ascetics and monastics and contemplatives uh, in this life or any of the other kinds of ways of being saints. Thank God most of us are not called to be martyrs, but thank God that there are martyrs. So I think then the fruit of, um, you know, Julian's life and the revelations are that she um, made great wine out of the fruits that she was given and has shared them with us so that we can gain these insights that maybe are a little bit helpful. I think especially, you know, with, with what's going on in the world around us today not just with this coronavirus thing, but the rest of it, trying to make sense out of the delicate balance between the goodness and mercy of God and of the suffering that so often touches our lives. Um, Anyway, we've been at it for a little while now. Do we want to sort of begin to draw this to a close for this first episode? Do you have, do you have final thoughts? on chapters one or two or Julian in general, or what we're doing with this project as we figure it out. I think that, um, what you said, we, we are all called to be saints, but we're not all called to be great mystics or martyrs or, um, it is, I think, good to remember, especially for those of us who are, have either entered or are discerning tertiary religious life that, um, you know, this, we are, we are all called to be saints and there are a multitude of ways that that can look. Um, and what we get in the revelations of divine love. I love that image. The, this is, this is wine made of fruit that a particular person was given. And that is, that was her charism in the sense of like spiritual gifts. This is her charism. And we have an opportunity in reading this text to drink from this wine and be nourished by it as we pursue 
our own charisms uh, of the call to sainthood. Thank you for listening to this episode. To find out more about Dame Julian, the Revelations of Divine Love, the Order of Julian of Norwich, or us, check the show notes to this episode. You can reach me, Chris Arnold, the producer of this series, at Apple Tree Pods on Twitter, or on Facebook, you can find the page Apple Tree Podcasts. That's all for now. We'll talk to you soon. May God bless you.